G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We're back and we're on the downhill run now leading to the conclusion of this first series of the podcast. This week we'll do the last of our scripture readings for study this season, the end of creation week where God rests. Or is it the start of Genesis 2? What is going on there, young Tim? Mm. Well, Chris, we're winding down for this season with just a few episodes to go before we break for season two. And we couldn't just leave the study and our whole season hanging by leaving the last day of creation week until next season, just because it's in chapter two. But that whole issue of the chapter break cutting day seven off from the first six days, that's just unfortunate. Uh, and, and it's what happens when you're not sensitive to what the biblical author is doing, which is really one of the main things I like to talk about in this podcast, you know, being aware of those kind of issues. We sometimes forget that the chapter and verse divisions were added to the text really late. Like we're talking late 1500s, long after the Bible was canonized. Now, they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is like Exhibit A of the proof of that. They've gone Lincoln Park on us here. Uh, Lincoln Park? Yeah, leave out all the rest, you know, because... God rested? Um, I don't get it, but okay. Oh, I'm sorry for what I've done. Is that another Linkin Park reference? Well, in the end, it doesn't even matter. Stop it! Okay, given up. Excellent. You may continue. But anyway, yeah, I wanted to start <laughs> us off with a different text. This time we're going we're gonna to read Psalm 132. Excellent. That's a good psalm. Yeah, so here it is. This is Psalm 132, the whole thing, a song of ascents. The fact that it says a song of ascents should clue us into what is going on here, and it'll become clear if you hadn't thought about it before as we read through. Lord remembered David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed, I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Yair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. That is such an impressive psalm and chock full of psalmy goodness. There's so much good stuff in it. Um, but we're not going to study all of that in detail, though, are we? <laughs> Maybe if I had a whole year to break it down. But, yeah, no, I'll tell you why uh, later, why, why it's important for our study today on 
day seven of creation week. So in First <laughs> Chronicles 28, verse 2, King David calls the Ark of the Covenant God's footstool. It's a material connection to the very presence of God, the place where he rests. And we saw that idea repeated just now in verse 7 of this psalm. The psalm was probably written by Solomon and expresses the desire of he and his father David to have God dwell in the midst of his people. In the temple, Solomon built according to David's instructions. So the temple's built and God condescends to inhabit it as grace given to Israel, but it's not long before this magnificent temple is defiled by the corruption of men in power. Hence God reminds them, through the prophet Isaiah, that they need him more than he needs them. So in Isaiah 66, verses 1 to 2, well, the first half of verse 2, 2a, if you like. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. And later... Jesus echoed Isaiah when he said in Matthew 5, and uh, this is verses 34 and 35, But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So what was the foundation of the concept of the heavens and the earth being God's dwelling place? What made ancient authors describe the cosmos as the seat of God's power and government? Well, I'm going to argue that it was creation. The giving of the law at Sinai provided the first statement of creation that the brand new nation of Israel could call their own. And it was so important. God told them several times to remember the Sabbath in honour of his creative work and his rest on the seventh day. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. For the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And God tells the Israelites again, right, in Exodus 23, to observe the Sabbath. This time in particular, told them about Sabbath years for resting the land, uh, animals, workers. And there's another one in there somewhere? Uh, yeah, there's a third time. But it's interesting that the one that you mentioned, because that's one that comes up when I've talked about it before as a reason why the exile actually happened, because of neglecting those Sabbaths. So, yeah, that's an important one. Yeah, the third time, uh, God reiterates this observance of the Sabbath. Again, this is uh, Exodus 31, verses 12 to 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, 
tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Thinking about how this comes up a third time in the same speech that God gives to Moses, it sort of makes me think of how the author is really trying to make the point that this is especially important to the meta-narrative, you know, the big picture of Scripture. So he repeats it like the last words of a dying master or something to really drive home the significance of keeping the Sabbath. Because later we learn that it was Israel's failure to keep the Sabbath that ultimately resulted in the exile. I can't help but seeing Yoda talk to Luke Skywalker on his deathbed. Luke. Luke. There is another sky. You might want to see someone um, about that throat of yours. It's getting worse. (laughs) (laughs) So remembering that the final form of the primeval history came about after most of these texts that we've read so far, it would be fair to say that there was a degree of familiarity with the concepts involved that sort of bleeds across into Genesis 1 as the byproduct of that culture which had been forged over 700 years in Israel. Not to mention the entire ancient world as far back as writing will take us. So what we find in Genesis 1 is a situation where certain associations can be made by the first audience that might not be intuitive to ourselves as modern readers. So here's our text from Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, okay, I get it. Actually, I don't get it. What are we supposed to be seeing here? So I I mentioned the ancient world beyond Israel, right? To to back that up, let's take a break for a minute and look at some other texts from the ancient Near East that will lend a little more depth to the discussion. Because I want to show that what I'm about to present to you isn't just my reading of the Bible, but actually the typical understanding of people in general in the ancient Near East. All right, so I've got an excerpt here from the Enuma Elish. You know, I love reading from that. It's very, uh, very interesting. Uh, this is from Tablet 5 and lines 117 through 129. Marduk opened his mouth to speak and addressed the gods his fathers. Above the Apsu, the emerald abode, opposite Ishara, which I built for you. Beneath the celestial parts whose floor I made firm, I will build a house to be my luxurious abode. Within it, I will establish its shrine. I will found my chamber and establish my kingship. When you come up from the Apsu to make a decision, this will be your resting place before the assembly. When you descend from heaven to make a decision, this will be your resting place before the assembly. I shall call its name Babylon, the home of the great gods. All right, so that's the end of that little quote there. And Here's another one, again, a Mesopotamian context. This one goes back further than Babylon, so this is really old. I like using Mesopotamian material because it gives us a cultural backdrop appropriate to the primeval history in terms of both literary and historical context. So this is part of the Sumerian temple hymn of Kesh. House inspiring great awe, called with a mighty name by Anne. House whose fate is grandly determined by the great mountain Enlil. House of the Anuna gods, possessing great power, which gives wisdom to the people. House, reposeful dwelling of the great gods. House which was planned, together with the plans of heaven and earth, with the pure divine powers. House which underpins the land and supports the shrines. Mm, I'm seeing a lot of resting here. These uh, texts must be written by men like me who delight in afternoon naps. 
So do gods uh, snore in front of the TV with a bit of drool coming out of their mouth and the remote control in their hand like our dads do? Um, well, possibly. <laughs> Certainly not like me. I can never find the remote. My kids have got it. Uh, uh, yeah, well, look, what we see here in these Mesopotamian texts is the idea that creation is intrinsically connected to temple building and the resting place of the gods. They also show that the rulership of the land took place centred around this temple and that the establishment of order was not complete merely with the creation of the stuff in the world around us, but with the completion of a place from which the land could be governed. And if you remember back in a very early episode of our podcast, for those who came in late, that was episode two, I was able to show that even the Canaanite mythology in the Baal cycle demonstrated a creation connected with temple building that lasted seven days. Now, Sabbath, or Shabbat, comes from the same root as Shabbat, to come to rest, as in to be seated in a commanding position, whether in ambush or in judgment or to be enthroned. So the work that prepared this position of rest is completed and comes to a stop. This stop is not a disengagement from creation, as many people might argue, but a transition into the dynamic act of rulership or dominion that is expressed as rest. There's a certain confidence in this position of rest that comes from knowing that things are in order and that you can deal with whatever may arise. It's not just a physical rest, but a security of, and, and a peace of mind. This state of rest is called nuach in Hebrew. It's the root from which we get the name of Noah. Now we know why Noah had that name given to him. Nuach is the state of peace, calm and confidence that comes from knowing everything's been set right. And that was the situation immediately following the Great Flood. Just as Noah ruled the world at rest after the re-creation event of the Great Flood, so God ruled the world after the six days of creation. So rest is a peaceful engagement with the created order, not a day off to do nothing and disconnect from the world. Very true, and that's unfortunately a foreign concept for a lot of people today. We think that rest is just, you know, disengaging or distraction or just filling up time with mindless kind of things. Um, so wasn't there something you mentioned earlier about rest and that psalm right at the top of the episode? Yeah, that's right. To see more of this connection between the Sabbath and the rule of God, uh, we should take a closer look at the text we started with, Psalm 132. So We've got David's oath that he wouldn't rest until God had a place of his own to rest in. David's playing with the idea of rest here as he talks about his own sleeping contrast with God's rule, and he talks in terms of rest to describe both. David wants God to rule from a temple in the land, and he's determined to make it happen. Watch what David does in verses 7 and 8 here, which, by the way, echoes Second Chronicles 6.41. Now David uses dwelling place and footstool in verse 7, followed by a resting place and ark in verse 8. Back in verse 5, the dwelling was the tabernacle, now it's the temple. And all of this has been combined to give the idea that God is to dwell in the temple, as he did in the tabernacle before that, with the Ark of the Covenant providing a material locality for God's presence that would remain in the temple and ensure God would remain there. We've got rest, dwelling, enthronement, all of these ideas coming together, especially later in verses 13 and 14, which name Zion. Remember how Jesus said not to swear by Jerusalem? The seat of God's dominion is not just Israel, not just Jerusalem, not just Zion, but the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the Temple on the Mount. So when God rests, he isn't having a Kit Kat and a coffee. He's ruling the world actively in full confidence that his creation is very good. 
That's what we're supposed to be seeing on day seven of creation. It's not a dot day where nothing happens. God is busy being the king, and the whole cosmos is his temple. That's why the temple, and even the tabernacle before that, was so heavy with detail in the design, with all the furniture and the decorations and everything. That's why the temple took seven years to build and seven days to dedicate. That's why they had the menorah in there giving light. That's why the curtains and veils were decorated like the starry sky. Remember in an earlier episode, I mentioned how Josephus described the outer curtain of the temple as a representation of the night sky with all the luminaries on it. And uh, the incense altar with the clouds of smoke in the air. That's, that's why there was a table with a bread on it for food. and There was a big basin full of water, which was called the sea. And there were pillars holding up the ceiling, representing the mountains that the Bible calls the pillars of the earth. That's why there's all the decoration of plants and animals and all of that stuff. Every detail of the tabernacle, every last engraving in the temple that came after it, they're all there to represent creation and the order that God brought to the world. So is it any wonder that Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you were built for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? And so they came into being. So when we read those first few verses of Genesis 2 and conclude the creation week, now we know what we're supposed to be seeing here, what an ancient reader would have seen the whole time. This is the beginning of the reign of God over his creation. Everything having been made very good in his sight, God rules on earth among the luminaries and the heavenly host as the Lord of spirits. His human representatives are the priests of his cosmic temple, performing services that honor God and maintain order in the temple, bringing food for fellowship and thanksgiving, praising God with song and striving to represent him to the best of our ability. All of Genesis 1 turns out to have been a temple dedication text designed to reassure the Jews that God doesn't need a temple of bricks and mortar because the whole cosmos is his temple. Remember, the Jews are in exile and they've, they've witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And they're sitting around trying to figure out where God is and who's in charge now and what are they going to do? And this would have been the greatest reassurance to read this text and go, yeah, that's right. We worship a God that doesn't need these things. Now, we talked last time about how one of mankind's distinctive features was this ability to strive towards an ideal, to innately know how things were meant to be and to be able to serve others toward that end. So this is the picture painted here as we see ourselves as ministers in God's sacred cosmic temple, serving him not just in a particular building on a particular hill in a faraway country, but all over the created world. Over the course of seven days, God has brought things into existence by giving them a divinely ordained purpose, a function and a name, filling each place with functionaries that carry out tasks. The heavens and the earth are the venue for this cosmic celebration. There is light to see and time marked for observances. The land gives man a home and provides his food. The sea limits his power and renews the land. Animals provide food and carry out tasks, some menial, some mysterious. The spirits of the deep and the winged creatures of the air do the bidding of God while the stars provide guidance and light in due course. All of this is a celebration of life and a joyful expression of God's goodness. And it is humanity that God made for the purpose of spreading the knowledge of his goodness, the good news to all the world. Amen. It's that's so amazing and quite intuitive now that you mention it. And uh, that's why God, I guess, spends like 10 times longer describing the tabernacle than he does describing the entire universe. Yeah, yeah, good point. Now, uh, it's it's certainly more important than we realised uh, to go through the 
the Torah, um, particularly through Exodus, and look at all those instructions and all those plans. You know, I was thinking about it. When you buy a, uh, a TV, for example, mm-hmm. it comes with an instruction manual. Yep. Right? You get the installation guide and user instructions and all that, right? Yes, but we men's we don't read that. No, right. Well, you, you know how you're gonna <laughs> how you're gonna do it, right? You, you're gonna bung it up on the wall there, and you're gonna yep. plug it in, and you're gonna fiddle about until it works. And yes. you know when that fails, then you'll come back to the instructions, and oh, I suppose I have to read it. Oh, that's what, yeah, right. Why didn't I do that? And you know yep. you sort it out, and and once you got the thing up and running, here's what you do. Now that you've got your TV installed and it's all working, someone comes to your house and you go, right, we're going to watch the footy today. Right, there's a big game on. Uh-huh. Before we sit down, I want you to read the user guide and the instruction manual. <laughs> okay, I've got the installation manual here. It's got all the – it shows you where all the screws go and the thickness of the bolts that are required for the bracket that mounts it to the wall. And uh, it's going to show you which cords you need to plug in and where they go. All right, this is important. Because you can't watch the game properly unless you know how all this was done, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I swear there's people who look at their Bible and they're like, why have I got the user manual for this tabernacle in here? <laughs> I, I don't care how they built it. What's that doing there? Mm. Right, and, and I think it's kind of lost on us because all these instructions are supposed to be telling us wonderful things that in the ancient world in that Mm -hmm. mindset those were important details Mm -hmm. because God's laying out the the significance of all these details as they relate to the experience of the natural world around them so uh yeah that's that's something to challenge ourselves as we go through and um and and read the uh the Torah Try and soak in those details and try to appreciate what they meant to the first audience, why they're still in there today, and how we reflect on the world around us in light of that. Well said as always. It's time for another Giant Warfare segment. Oh, oh, wow. I said that like I was a game show host. So these have been really interesting. What have you got for us this week, Tim? Well, continuing our series on the serpent seed doctrines, today we're going to look at the idea that Satan gave rise to his own progeny by having intercourse with Eve in the Garden of Eden. I would have liked to address this when we get to the scripture in the course of our regular study, but creeping through the text as I do, that could take like a year to get there. So... We're going to hit it now in keeping with this series, and when we do get into Genesis 3 and 4, I'll be able to look at other stuff in the text at that time. So maybe you haven't heard of this idea, but it is a particularly poisonous ideology that's been festering in the internet fringe communities, particularly among the ancient aliens crowd and the Gnostics. What about you, Chris? Have you come across this before? Definitely not. It's all new to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious what you're going to say. Oh, it's it's crazy. It is crazy (laughs) stuff. Oh, I should say too, it's it's not limited to the 
to to the internet fringe. You can find this in the mainstream too. This idea was actually knocked on the head very early by uh, one of the church fathers named uh, Irenaeus, who wrote uh, his his work called Against Heresies. And uh, you just know if it's addressed in a in a work called Against Heresies, then you're already uh, in a bad place here. This is, yeah, anything they say is heretical is likely to uh, have you end up being uh, unsaved if you uh, take it to heart. Uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, nevertheless, all the heresy needs in order to be revived is a general ignorance of doctrine combined with a prejudice that requires a convenient excuse and every now and then a fresh coat of paint. This story is the same whether it's told by Greco-Roman Gnostics, the adherents of British Israelism in the late 19th century, the Nazi party of the 20th century, or modern-day white supremacists. And uh, you should notice the trend here. These people are overwhelmingly white. See, uh, Gnosticism had one of its core ideas, this concept of light being essentially good and darkness being essentially evil. Now, that's okay if you're Roman or British or Aryan or anyone of that descent, and that's a group that includes my own ancestors since I have British ancestry, um, you know, because you're white. So that means according to Gnosticism, you're good, you're holy, you're a good person, you're, you're like God. On the other hand, according to the Gnostics, if you're black, there's something wrong with you. The Gnostics would say that blackness is evidence of evil because light is good and dark is bad. Now, obviously, I disagree with this. Uh, Chris, also, you disagree with this. Um, and we're yes. going to talk about why. <laughs> I just want to say that publicly. Yes. <laughs> but the idea that anyone with coloured skin is inherently evil has some very deep roots and lies at the core of what we call today the serpent seed theology. Now, I've had a lot of questions about this, so we're going to hit it now as a resource for those in the future who are asking. Let's just start with the idea that whiteness equals goodness. Scripture teaches in 1 John chapter 1, from verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, it should be quite clear from the text that the light-darkness dichotomy is analogous to the sin-purity language in the same passage. Light is symbolic of holiness, not whiteness. And nowhere is there anything about skin colour reflecting moral status or holiness. In fact, if you claim to be one of the true believers here, you have to accept that you're not without sin. And the cleansing you received from Christ was not being born white. So, I mean, you know, do you honestly think sinners are born black and saints are born white? Didn't think so. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us all from sin, and that alone, it doesn't matter what skin colour you have. And how obvious does it have to be in Scripture that the first hearers of this message were Jewish and therefore non-white? So it should be very clear that this kind of teaching is nothing more than a disgusting display of racist ideology. And that leads to the next question. Why would anyone start something like that? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, mind-boggling. So what goes through someone's mind who needs to twist the Bible like that? Oh, well, you can pick any from a long list of reasons. I haven't got time for all of this, but, you know, if you're building an empire and you need your people to believe they're entitled to dominion over their neighbour, well, you know, there you have it. 
back in the age of discovery when Europeans were sailing all over the globe in an effort to conquer the world, they would encounter people groups that they've never seen before. And if you think that the table of nations in Genesis 1 was supposed to be an exhaustive list of all the peoples of the world, then you have to explain these people who are not in the list. And the thinking was, well, these can't be humans. They must be entirely separate race because we don't find them in the Bible. So that automatically makes them animals, savage beasts that aren't connected to Scripture and can't have any connection to Christ or any purpose in God's plan. Uh, you know, that might sound ridiculous, but here in Australia, the indigenous people were so badly mistreated by the colonizers that they were not even given legal status as humans until the 1960s. All right? I mean, that's, that's my parents' generation. Right, That just breaks my heart. In fact, as recently as the early 80s, uh, Aboriginal people were still being forcibly removed from Indigenous families and placed in white households here in Australia in an effort to cut off their ties with family and country. Like just, I mean, I mean, Hitler used the Bible, didn't he? And like you're saying about the Aryan yeah. and all that kind of stuff, like these are evil people and, you know, we're the chosen ones of God. And any... Yeah, any argument that starts from that perspective is not honouring God or your neighbour, which are the two greatest commandments. So I yeah. don't know how people, you really have to twist your own mind to kind of justify it. Yeah, it's very logical. Yeah, that's right. And deceptive. Yeah, I think it comes from a warped view of what humanity actually is. Mm. And I mean, that's one reason why we spent a few episodes talking about the image of God. Mm. And uh, and tying that to a a correct view of of what actually makes us human and you know distinct in that way. Because mm. um, I think once you've actually sat down and gone through that seriously and taken a look around you, you realise that you just can't separate any group out of humanity and say that well you know they don't. Yeah. Qualify. Well, exactly. I mean, that was the antithesis. Um, you know, I mean, Jesus's message was this is for the Gentiles and the Jews. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's why I made the point that um, man was made in the image of God before we get talking about Adam and Eve. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, they're not even necessarily in the picture and we've already got, mm. um, you know, the, the human race as God's image bearers. Mm. There is only one race. So what if we recognise that these people are, in fact, humans, or at least human enough to pass if you can't bring yourself around to, to that way of thinking? We still have to explain where they come from. Because if there are people outside of the Scriptures and we're told that the Bible contains all truth, now there's a dangerous logical misstep, then the existence of these people challenges the Bible. And this led many in the religious community to propose that perhaps the indigenous communities of the Americas, Southern Africa, Australia and other lands had come from some mysterious lineage that the Bible is deliberately almost silent about. Were they actually the Nephilim? Obviously not. This was fueled in part by the Table of Nations being treated as exhaustive and in part by readings of the flood account that give the impression of a global flood where we see things like all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered in Genesis 7:19, or the whole world had one language and a common speech in Genesis 11:1. 1. These were taken to be affirmations that the Bible had nothing to say about people beyond the continental landmass. So if that's the case, you have to find your savages elsewhere in Scripture to account for them. 
And that means going back further in Genesis to find any possible means by which some other presumably subhuman species might have arisen. Now, on the one hand, you have your line of good guys in Genesis 5. Uh, we're only assuming they're good because of Noah being at the end of the line, but that's another story. And on the other, you have your bad guys, as exemplified first in Cain, the murderer. And we want to be like the good guys. So Cain receives this mark from God that makes him different, and then he goes away to some distant land. What if God made Cain black? Now we have black folks in faraway places just waiting to be discovered by good white Christians in the 16th century. I hope this makes you feel sick as much as it does me. But um, that doesn't go far enough because if we're buying the story so far, Cain is still human, not Nephilim, made in God's image. And you can't have that if you want to have the right to treat these people as less than human so that you can take their land and claim it for king and country. The solution then is to claim some other parentage for Cain that separates him from Adam. And the way to do that is to take a very particular reading of Genesis 3 that muddies the waters concerning Eve's involvement with the serpent. So here's what the Bible really says in Genesis 3, verses 1 to 15. And we're going to read from the RSV. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And going on to Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. All right, so that's our readings from the scripture. Now, we picked up in the RSV the use of seed there in uh, 3.15, which gave rise to the name of this doctrine. It's very pervasive. You can find this doctrine among many Baptists, but not all, among many Pentecostals, but not all. 
among many Jehovah's Witnesses, but not all, and among countless other groups, both fringe and mainstream. It's actually popular in some reformed circles because if you take your hardcore Calvinism, where some are created for eternal life and some are created to be objects of wrath, well, it fits hand in glove. You ask a serious Calvinist if some people are the seed of Satan and they'll just say, well, yeah, of course. But it takes some serious effort to be able to get this out of Scripture. So here's how you make it work. First, you have to pretend that eating is a euphemism for sex. Then you have to pretend that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the same thing as the serpent himself. Then you have to argue that Eve realising she was naked was because she'd just been having sex and somehow she doesn't realise this before or during having sex. Did she do it with her clothes on? In another version of this, it's the beguiling that apparently means having sex. Again, there's no leg to stand on here, but whatever. Is that a serpent joke? He didn't have a leg to stand on. Ah, good one. All right, and when the serpent says your eyes will be opened, it's apparently a euphemism for the opening of the womb or something like that, despite the fact that these euphemisms don't work anywhere else in Scripture and would have to apply to Adam as well. Oh, yeah, that's right. Adam did this too. Does he have a vagina? Was he doing it with the serpent too? And Come on, man. And then you also have to ignore the only genuinely correct euphemism that does appear in the text, the bit where Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. And after all that, you have to assume that Eve was lying or deceived when she said that she'd gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's Yahweh there. So apparently it was not Yahweh, but Eve said it was, and actually it was the serpent, or, or was it? Um, yeah, no, it's just um, the kind of thing when personal prejudices or political ideals or, you know, whatever it is that motivates the thing in, in the background. When that becomes more important than Scripture, then you start trying to find other ways to read the Scripture to make it work. And, yes. Yeah. So, okay, now I can justify it. Mm. I don't have to feel bad about my hate. Yeah, it's and, pretty, it's pretty you know, the, the sure way to, uh, to trip these things up is to just go back and check the rest of Scripture, and, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean... You know, you just don't find the kind of twisted use of of terminology in, anywhere else in Scripture. You know, this uh, when 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 Eve says that, you know, the serpent beguiled me. Oh, that, that yeah, that we we, we were doing it. Like, that's yeah. <laughs> how do you even get this? Like, yeah, you know, there's, there's just no support for that. No. And yeah, as I say, you have to take pretty much everything in that whole. 15 verses there of of Genesis 3 and then ignore half of, of Genesis 4.1 and use that as your basis. Uh, and uh, as I say, then, then it sort of starts to twist in other things like the Nephilim and the rest of it. Oh, well, you yeah. know, they must have been black people. You know, like, it's just, it's mad. And, and the other thing too <sighs> is we're starting to see a reversal of it now and not a good reversal just a different way of telling the same lie but with a different audience because now we've got uh, groups like the uh, black Hebrew Israelites and they, oh, okay. they are African-Americans who believe that they really are the, the real biblical Jews and that the people that we know of as ethnic Jews from Israel are all imposters and, and they're not God's people. <laughs> You know, and they, they reckon that God's black. I mean, I, I actually touched on this in an earlier episode we did where, yeah, I sort of mentioned, because I, I read a verse from I guess, Jeremiah that talked, you know, where God said that 
like his face was black, which was supposed to represent mourning or something, you know, like oh, was, right. yep. just, you know, grieving. And uh, yeah, they, they took that and went, see, God's black, you know, like us. And, you know, the rest of you, you're all going to hell. And <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's just a reversal of, of yeah. the same thing. Say a, a fresh coat of paint on the same yeah. heresy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these things just keep popping up. Here's where the story takes a twist from the modern audience, where early interpreters saw the serpent or perhaps another divine enemy in Genesis 4, verse 1. Leave it to the moderns to think of some crazy alternative. It's got to be aliens, right? Tell me it's aliens. Well, I'm not saying it was aliens, but ooh, it was aliens. Yeah, the idea that aliens came to Earth in the distant past to hybridise monkeys into Homo sapiens has been around since the 1960s, but you don't even need to get into that ridiculous nonsense to refute the claim because it still relies on ignoring what the Bible says about how Eve conceived Cain. But anyway, all that rubbish, as stupid as it sounds, is apparently easier to accept than the straight teaching of Scripture because if there wasn't some kind of other race existing among us, then surely Jesus was lying when he said to the Pharisees in John 8.44, You were of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what was Jesus talking about there? Well, we're out of time, so we'll hit that next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Oh, way to leave us hanging, but that is a good one. So what else have we got planned for next week? Oh, okay. So we uh, we all know about all the things that God made good in creation. The main thing I want to do next time is to take a look at the things that God made not so good. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, there are some indications in the text that suggest that not everything God made was playing nice. So we're going to dive into that as we get closer to the end of our first season of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Stick around. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Enjoyed the weather. Somehow managed to get sunburnt even though it wasn't hot. Um, yeah, had a...
had a good time. Nice. Yeah, you know, you get to a, a certain stage with your kids and you start to realise that you need to be a bit more careful about what you do and say around them because they're like absorbing everything. And, uh, you know, I, in the morning I'm greeted with these excited kids, you know, and they, they want to give me their uh, Father's Day gift. So um, I got a... Uh, a hip flask for whiskey. I've got a coffee cup with chocolate in it, and I've got a pair of pajamas. Um, what a combo! Oh yeah, Mandalorian pajamas, like very cool. Even better. Um, but I was like, hmm, okay, so I've got something to help me cope with everything that happens between eight p.m. and eight a.m. And I don't know what I'm going to do during the daylight hours. <laughs> 